Hello, this is the Contractor Coffee Club podcast presented by EGIA, and I'm your host, Mark Madison. This podcast is hosted on egia.org slash podcast, where you can also find links to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, along with an archive of all previous episodes, a submission form for our listener Q&A, and the link to take the latest EGI snapshot survey. In today's episode, we have the privilege of interviewing Gary Ellix. Gary, how are you this morning? I'm fantastic, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and uh, it's good to be with you all. Well, you, you and I have something in common. Uh, you were a Buckeye, weren't you? I'm uh, always a Buckeye. Once a Buckeye, you uh, you don't give that up. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I'm looking at a coffee cup with an acorn on it that my aunt sent me because my father uh, had a full ride to Ohio State in football and then found out he didn't have the grades, so he ended up going to Bowling Green. But I'm an Ohio guy. I was born in Akron. You played baseball in in uh, for Ohio State, did you not? I did, absolutely. What position? I uh, played center field and a little second base. Nice. And what year was that, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, 1980 through 83. Did you guys have a good team? Not really. Uh, I mean, nowadays <laughs> they're way better, much better. So uh, it was uh, a middle-of-the-road uh, program in those days. I got gotcha. you. Uh, we had a lot of fun and lots of uh, lots of good friendships, lots of memories. You, uh, do you, you're you're pretty fit. You're a fit guy. I don't know how old you are, but I know you're pretty committed to working out. Do you think that's a function of being a college athlete? Do you think that had a an impact on that continuing commitment? Uh, great question. Um, you know, I think it teaches you some of the ideas about what you should be doing. Uh, but I think as you get into work, you know, and especially as you get a little bit older it's pretty easy to not be committed to the discipline of, you know, working out. I think a lot of people think or they act out uh, in their jobs that the job is, you know, sort of more important and it's very easy to get in that trap. So um, I think one of the things that that probably taught me was that, you know, being fit uh, helps you have more energy, eating right, you know, uh, keeps you more focused. Uh, all those right. things actually help you be more productive at work. And I, I guess that lesson stuck with with me. So uh, I have found that to be true. If I don't work out for a while or whatever, um, I, I find myself a little more sluggish. So, I, and I suppose, Mark, that's probably different for everybody, but uh, I think it's pretty smart to uh, keep your fitness routine as a top priority and do something every day and not define yourself by the work, you know? So uh, if you don't right. have your health, you don't have anything. Well, it's kind of like strawberries, isn't it? I mean, this time of year we buy strawberries and after about four or five days, they start going moldy. And if, if uh, yeah, I go five absolutely. days without working out, I get moldy, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's easy to get into a different set of habits once that occurs. Exactly. Yeah, good habits are hard to form but easy to live with. Bad habits are easy to form and hard to live with. So, no question. Well, how did you get started in HVAC? Well, I actually was uh, uh, recruited uh, by a company called Magic Chef Air Conditioning out of school. And uh, I actually had a job when jobs were pretty scarce back then in 83. And part of that uh, was just accident, it was random. I mean, I, I was just looking for any job, to be honest with you. I didn't really know anything about heating or air conditioning. And so, you know, the interview process was, what do you know about heating and air conditioning? Because I grew up in a household that didn't have air conditioning uh, uh, you know, in, in the Columbus area. So at least not until the day that I, uh, I was moving out, that's when my dad sold his house and put air conditioning in in order to make the resale value happen. So um, yeah, for me, it was, it was just the opportunity to have employment. And the training program was the tall ones were furnaces, the short ones are air conditioners, and we'll explain the rest to you later. 
And what was your first job? I was actually uh, a gopher. We, w we came into the uh, sales training program back in the day, and uh, the, the training process was about calling on distributors in sales, selling uh, the product uh, that Magic Chef had at the time. And you know, for, so for me, the first six months was really just a sales training process. So mostly I filled out the gamut AR reports and spent a lot of time uh, moving around the company, kind of learning the different positions and so forth. So um, they called us the seal pups. And uh, being from the Northwest or living in the Northwest now, you probably could appreciate that that was an analogy to the day when they used to club the seal pups up in Alaska as part of the hunt. And right. so they, they termed our training group the seal pups because basically we were being flogged each and every day by the sales training organization, uh, sort of not knowing anything. So, uh, but it was great. I mean, it was a great experience. It was a sink or swim kind of a thing and a good opportunity to learn the trade, learn a little bit about what's going on inside of the distributorship community. So uh, my first real job there then after that was just calling on distributors across the East Coast and spending time working with uh, the organizations to try to help people become more successful selling the Magic Chef product line. Nothing like a good flogging to motivate you. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely an interesting time for sure. It's a, a different era now. So Magic Chef, was, uh, are they even around anymore? Uh, the brand name's still around, uh, especially in some of the uh, other countries around, but the uh, company was eventually sold. Back in those days, uh, a lot of the major appliance manufacturers owned air conditioning divisions. Uh, Whirlpool would have been one. Um, just uh, Frigidaire. So, but that really became a, a business model for them that none of them were interested in. So Magic Chef was a private company held by the Reimer family. And they decided at one point that they, they wanted out. So they ended up selling that division to Lennox. Um, they had several different brand names, Gafferson, Sadler, uh, Magic Chef, uh, Armstrong, which is so now the company is purchased by Lennox and now is under the division of Armstrong. So um, the brand names are still around, but for the most part, obviously, it's part of the Lennox organization these days. Do you think working for a manufacturer and selling to distributors gave you kind of a 30,000-foot uh, view of the industry? Yeah, well, it certainly gave me a viewpoint of that part of the channel. Uh, so, Mark, I think, you know, one of the things, you know, now being a contractor, it gives you exposure to the trade, uh, but it's different. Uh, each part of the vertical is definitely unique. Uh, when I, when we were absorbed and I went to work for Lennox, um, they were in the manufacturing side, uh, to a much larger degree. So, uh, it gave me an opportunity to look at the vertical from that side of the equation. I would say that in a lot of ways, probably you thought you knew a lot more about contracting at that level. Uh, but obviously when I got into the retail side of it, um, I, I learned that you probably didn't really know too much. And so it's a minute to minute second by second business and it's labor driven. And so distribution manufacturing is a little bit different. Um, so uh, uh, they each offer their own perspectives for sure, but it, it certainly helped from a training. There's a lot of resources there. Um, they spent a lot of money on me and uh, I'm still very appreciative of that. So Lennox, so tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, about 14 years I spent there. It was a, really a, a super experience for me. Um, they gave me an opportunity to be a uh, manager of people probably when I wasn't really prepared for it. And <laughs> so I was a pretty young pup at the time. And I say that, you know, in context of being where I am today at the time, you know, I didn't think I was all that young, but 
um, things change as you tend to age, but they put me in positions to have some responsibilities and some uh, capabilities to do things that um, I probably wouldn't have experienced, you know, uh, in other companies at the age that I had that opportunity. So uh, it was great. And, you know, I, I got to travel a lot, um, got to see the world and uh, met tremendous amounts of people inside of the Lennox family, the organization, uh, the dealer base, uh, just uh, a lot of loyalty, learned, learned an awful lot, uh, just had a lot of opportunities there. So I look back on that as very, very thankful. You got thrown into the deep end of the pool at a pretty young age. Very young, 29. I was managing uh, the only division that they had that was losing money. And my boss uh, told me, hey, you, uh, you do what you need to do. You really can't screw it up worse than it already is. That, that, that's a true <laughs> statement. And so I, I was chuckling with him just like we're laughing now. And I said, you're kidding me. And he said, no, I'm, I'm really not. He's like, uh, uh, you know, I want your plan, but I really need you to do something. You know, what we're doing there is not working. So um, that was a, just a, a, an amazing opportunity because you just get to look at the picture from, as you said, that 50,000 view put, uh, foot view where you're able to say, well, why are we doing that? And uh, had a lot of support from him to be able to make changes. And so uh, it turned around and it worked out nicely. So uh, for them and for me. Do you think that uh, the things you learned in that position still serves you well today? Without question, without question. I mean, leadership has just got so many tentacles to it. And each situation, each company, each group of individuals, each team is so unique based on the diversity of the people. Um, so yeah, I had, I had a great staff. They just lacked uh, some vision and they lacked uh, some direction into how to apply their skills. So they were super talented. And really all I did was kind of unleash them and try to figure out how to put them in a position to be prosperous. And I always believe that the customer has to win. Uh, the employee has to win. And then obviously the organization that's, you know, supporting that has to win. So they just really needed the blueprint. And uh, so I spent a good deal of time training them and just kind of getting them organized. And those lessons are absolutely the same things that we do today, you know, in any of our businesses that we operate. It's just all about getting people in a position to do the work. Um, I found in life that most people are showing up to work with the best intentions, but a lot of times they they have to make up their own minds because the clarity and the direction isn't necessarily where we uh, have given them the specifics to execute. And so um, part of what I tried to do there was just to provide a framework and say, you know, I trust your decision-making. You have the authority. Um, I'll still contain a measure of control. Lennox isn't going to give up control of its decision-making, but you want people to be able to make decisions in front of the customer so that it, it moves faster and um, those things are still present and uh, I think are important in today's world. So you gave them the, you created the vision, you gave them the tools they needed and you got out of their way. I did uh, as much as possible. And uh, I also, you know, just spent an awful lot of time reinforcing the positives. And uh, I will say that uh, a lot of organizations that one at the time, that particular division, uh, a lot of people don't like current reality if it's not, if it's not going well. And so what I tried to do is explain to that group that it's not conflict, it's really just identifying the problem. And we like to focus on the idea even today to be hard on the problem and soft on the people. Uh, so the people are doing the best they can. You wanna train them and give them the tools, but 
the the idea of dissecting the current reality if it's not functioning well was something they needed to grow into. So we, I really taught them the, the lesson that it's okay to talk about something that's not going well. It's not a failure unless you keep repeating the same mistakes. So you, you break that problem down, you, you learn from it, and you try not to repeat that. And that really helped uh, that group a lot, where before I think maybe the previous leadership would have been critical uh, or you know pointed the finger and assigned blame, and so that's not really a very productive thing. Uh, again, most people show up for work and try to do things the right way, and oftentimes if it doesn't work, it's not because they weren't committed or weren't trying hard. They maybe just didn't have the ability to execute that particular practice. So, um, yeah, try to get out of their way is a good way to put it. And you, it sounds like you made the truth easy. Yeah, we, we concentrated on making the truth uh, data-driven, that you know we would look at facts and data so that the conclusion would be supported by information that uh, really wasn't something that was pointing a finger at any individual, but was really designed to just say, well, here's the problem and here are the data points. Um, so we use that as a core value and a cultural philosophy in most of our, our company discussions. Uh, so we use the term in God we trust, everybody else brings data. And so that's a philosophy <laughs> that we use. Yeah, with the metrics, you can figure out where you are. Yeah, that's the idea. And so everybody, knows the metric, everybody understands that we're going to use metrics. And so after a while, people get used to the idea that we're going to talk about metrics. And so it isn't about necessarily achieving or not achieving the metric. It's talking about what's happening in order to make sure that it's consistently achieved. Um, yeah, Wally, uh, you know, Weldon Long has, you know, has his book out there, The Power of Consistency. I think uh, the great message there that it, you don't have to do it right every single time. You just have to be consistently right in, in terms of execution. Um, right. Everybody's going to make mistakes. Um, we're going to put installs in sometimes that you know we don't braze properly and there's a leak. That stuff's going to happen. Uh, we're going to bring on new employees, new team members, and sometimes that's not going to work. Uh, in our web company, you know, occasionally we're going to make a mistake on processing. We had a we had a customer the other day where we processed a credit card wrong, and you know we had the wrong amount. I mean. So those things happen. It's more or less being consistent in how you how you repair that problem, how quickly you can expedite the quality control behind it. And where performance is measured, performance improves. Certainly, if you have the right people, for sure. And uh, right. I've been fortunate in my career. Um, I've been able to work with some of the best, and so we've been we've been very lucky. You subscribe to the leadership philosophy that says, number one, where's the bus going? Number two, who's on the bus? And number three, are they in the right seat on the bus? I do. I do. Um, I think there's uh, an organization should make sure that they definitely understand their own culture and have a definition of what that is. But I think part of you know having the right people on the bus is making sure that it's a cultural fit. There's lots right. of people that don't necessarily fit into a particular company. That doesn't mean they're uh, necessarily a bad person in any way. It just means that maybe that that particular individual isn't suited for that culture. And Not a good so, fit. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then once you find the right culture and you've got the right individuals, then getting them in the right place where they're functioning well. Um, we just made an adjustment in one of my businesses where, you know, we had a, a gentleman who's just super talented, was babysitting a division of the company. And he was doing it as a favor because we didn't have anybody else to fill that role at that moment that was capable. And, but he hated it. Like that wasn't his passion. And so, you know, just 
upon discussing that with him, uh, he's like, "Hey, I'm just I'm just not really happy." And you know, well, why aren't you happy? Well, I'm I, I, I'm committed to the work, but this is not what I love. Well, what do you love? Well, I love technology. I love developing. I love programming. Well, great. Why don't we have you do that? So we moved him. Uh, we made that decision instantly, and so he, he's within several weeks. He's, he's like, "I just love it. I love where the vision is going. I love." the ideas of what's happening. I love what I'm doing again. I'm happy again. I just feel more energy, more focused. And so, you know, having him in the right position changed his entire outlook about the, you know, staying with the company and just being productive. And, uh, and I think the final uh, component of that is I think you do owe people development and a plan and some training and regular conversation and regular uh, feedback and reviews. We try to do that three times a year uh, we follow the scaling up process in that regard. So their metrics are known. Um, the job responsibilities are known. There's a lot of clarity there. And um, that, that to me is part of that discussion about having the right people on the bus in the right seats is you know, give them the tools, resources, and give them the feedback and give them the coaching necessary for them to prosper. If you try to teach a pig how to sing, all you do is annoy the pig and waste your time and your money. How dare you call me a pig? No, <laughs> I'm just a metaphor. I know I'm teasing you, Mark. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's such a, can you imagine I was a technician for 10 years? You know me pretty well. Uh, that wasn't the right seat on the bus for me. I worked really hard at it, but once I got into sales, it was passion and preference. And that's what I'm hearing you say is, you know, when you, when you see that somebody's unhappy, maybe they're just in the wrong seat. Yeah. I think you want to try to make sure people, have the opportunity to figure that out, like what, what their interests are, what their passion are. And yeah, if you can, not all organizations may have that slot. So that's sometimes you have to uh, do what we call culture people out so that, you know, if it's not a good fit, there's sort of a right way and a, maybe a, a, a more uh, adversarial way to let people go. But I think there's also the principle that if it's not a good fit, and they're not happy, then it's probably not good for the organization and it's certainly not good for the individual. So, you know, that, that crash is coming sooner or later, the employees leaving you or you're going to terminate them. So I think helping them figure out what they're good at and what they want to do. And then if they're not, you know, figuring out a way to move them through the organization into a different place of work is not a bad thing. Uh, right. So uh, we like to refer to that as blessed and release. Nice. Dehire. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. So when did you start? When did you start sharing your success with other contractors? Uh, when did that kind of idea come to you, or did you just did you get in the shallow end of the pool? How did that unfold? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think uh, philosophically, I had some pretty good instruction in my athletic career, and uh, the coaches probably instilled some of that uh, for me, just uh, in relationship to teamwork. Uh, most of the sports I played were team-related sports as opposed to individual. Sure. So I learned pretty quickly, I think, that on the more successful teams, that the team had alignment and uh, a lot of unity, and everybody was really committed to the overall objective, the goals. I mean, we set team goals and so forth. Um, so, you know, as I became... Uh, more of an upperclassman. I think they delegated some responsibilities to us as team captains and leaders to say, hey, you're responsible for bringing the younger guys on and making sure they understand how we do things, how we do the weight room, how we do uh, diet, how we do calisthenics, how we do schoolwork. 
um, how we manage ourselves. I mean, how we treat each other in the locker room, all that kind of stuff. So, um, right. uh, so I think that's early on. I mean, that came also from, you know, the parenting side. So a lot of uniformity in my early development about those kinds of things. So when I got into the work world, um, I had a pretty early opportunity with Lennox to be involved in what they used to term their dealer business consulting program. Uh, they used to title that the DBC. Um, and part of that responsibility was to help contractors improve their businesses. Lennox was interested in a lot of different things. They wanted to sell more units, of course, but they also wanted to have their contractors be successful because they figured the relationship was better and stronger, more loyalty to the brand and to the, to the company uh, attributes of Lennox if they were successful with the product line. Uh, so I, I was able to do that. I was successful doing that and it just made a lot of sense. And it was a, a lot of alignment with my skill set. And then I just, I started carrying that forward and as I got the opportunity to manage and so forth. So, um, I, yeah, I think it started early, Mark, and it, it's continued on. Um, in uh, When service experts sold their business uh, to Lennox, uh, that's when I sort of jumped off in 2000, started my consulting practice. And so it was pretty easy for me to do that at the time because Lennox had given me a real formula that worked. So I was able to export the knowledge that I had to those that wanted it. And I think that's the secret. Uh, people have to want to change. They have to want to get better. And if they do, you can pretty much help them. And so um, I was able to, uh, to be successful in the consulting uh, practice pretty, pretty early and pretty often. I recall with great fondness uh, running into you at the Kinko's in Phoenix yeah. and you were putting together a bunch of binders. This was probably 12 years ago. Yeah, about that. And yeah. you, you were delivering, I don't know, a half day or an all day thing with York. And, and uh, I said, what are you doing? You know, and I don't forget what I was doing there. I was getting something copied and you had like the handouts were like 490 pages. And uh, I just laughed. It's like, dude, you know, what five day period are you going to deliver all that? But I, one of the great things that I admire about you is how content rich your information is. Well, I appreciate the compliment. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I do remember that day, by the way. And uh, yeah, so we were doing a, a financial uh, uh, training uh, boot camp. Right. And uh, it probably was close to page, <laughs> uh, with lots of charts and Excel spreadsheets. Yes. So, um, yeah, I, I've always believed in, you know, there's a core message. And so that's at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. Uh, one might say even at the bottom of the pyramid is the foundation. And then uh, you give people the opportunity to digest the material if they want to. Um, there's probably some people out there. I know others have commented, well, you know, that's too much. And I, I don't really think that I should make that decision for my client. My client can decide if it's too much. My job is to distill it down to do this first, do this second, you know, do this fifth, do this 10th. And so I think that it's not really about the information. It's about uh, prioritization. It's about the choices. And right. I would say that about time. I mean, Steve and Covey's book sort of outlines that. There's just an awful lot of evidence out there that suggests that it's not about uh, the content. Uh, so it's about how do you apply the prioritization to content. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the big trick, I think, is trying to figure out how to do that in business. It's doing first things first, one thing at a time, and finish what you start. Exactly. And, yeah, not, and, and not let people distract you from that because that's out there. Right. So you have a real passion for helping other people. And obviously that came from your, your experience with sports. 
and specifically uh, being on an, an interdependent team. You know, track teams and wrestling teams are not interdependent, what basketball and baseball teams are. Yes. And so that, that team mindset that, that we're in, interdependent, like a mobile hanging over a baby's crib, you know, you move one piece and the whole thing moves. And so as a leader, when you're faced with the challenge of building a team, in your opinion, what's the number one thing a leader has to do to build an effective team? Well, uh, it certainly helps to have people that share the vision that you would have as an organization or, you know, from the standpoint of working for a company like Lennox, you know, share me sharing their vision and obviously finding people that have a common aligned vision. I, I think from a leadership point of view, you know, setting up the vision and the purpose, you know, the, the larger issues of why we do the work that we do, um, you know, what makes it passionate. Um, I think core values are really uh, underrated in a lot of cases uh, by our trades. Uh, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, it's a, it's a soft uh, issue, but really it's not. It's actually sort of a hiring and firing issue. So really, when you think about it, it's uh, it's they're really important to define the type of value structure that you want from the people that are in the company or in your organization. And that's very difficult to find. So I think, you know, you select your people and you try to figure out how to train around that. Uh, and then behind that, you know, sort of the, the third dot there are the philosophies. You know, how are we going to operate? How are we going to treat each other? How are we going to treat the customer? What kind of things do we want to make sure that the client experience is on the deliverable? So there's big issues there. And I would suggest to you that I think uh, organizations that don't function well profitably and from a growth point of view and just as a team unit, um, those things have cracks in them or they have missing pieces. Um, it doesn't mean they don't know how to market. It doesn't mean they don't know how to sell or install or you know do their accounting. I mean, all that stuff can be present below, but as the business grows, we reach a, a stress crack or we reach a, a plateau. And so having alignment in the vision, the purpose, the value structures, the belief systems and the, and the philosophies are what allow us to go out and find the right people, you know, that are, that are not part of the team today and bring them into the team so we can grow the business right. and maintain continuity. Um, I mean, that's, that's the problem is uh, I noticed, you know, flying Southwest airlines for the last, you know, 20 some years, you know, when they were tiny, and they were really sort of a regional airline. I mean, they, they just had a group of employees that were super, super aligned. And then I've also noticed in recent years as they've grown and expanded and, and had other routes, um, they're, they're hiring some legacy employees from some of the other airlines. And I can pinpoint the people from the other airlines. Yeah. And I ask them often, I'm like, hey, did you used to work for a different airline? They go, oh, yeah, I came from such and such airline. Right. And so culturally, it, you can just pick them out. They're just not the same. And so right. obviously Southwest is struggling, you know, with that. You try to you get them in alignment. Uh, but I think that's the challenge is, you know, um, they're not quite as friendly. They maybe don't smile as much. They don't throw right. the peanuts at you. Uh, they're not singing and telling jokes and, you know, the dancing in the aisles and doing all the kind of stuff. And so uh, I'm not saying that it's good or bad. Um, Southwest is a very successful business and they seem to do very well, but I, I do, I do notice it in their execution. So they've, they've promised me an experience. And when the experience doesn't hit the mark, you start asking yourself the question, you know, is there, is there a different choice? 
So I think that's our challenge from a leadership point of view is to try to maintain continuity in, uh, in the deliverable on the brand experience. It's, it's tough. I mean, it's, a, it's every day trying to figure out how to make that happen. I saw the exact same thing happen when Delta merged with Northwest. You mm -hmm. can spot the Northwest flight attendants immediately for all the reasons you just stated. So what I'm hearing you say loud and clear is birds of a feather flock together and the challenge is finding the right birds. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. So I was trying to stay away from naming names, but but you're but the, that was on my list for sure. Yeah, well, you know, it is what it is, right? I mean, yeah, yep, yep. So from your point of view, you like me travel around the country, around the world, you know, working with contractors. What do you see as the biggest challenge for them right now? Well, I mean, I think besides the standard stuff, which is you know just making sure that we can answer the phone today, um, you know, when it's crazy busy. Uh, the biggest issue, I think, is probably just finding uh, people that are were able to hire to grow the business. And I think that's just been a challenge for a while. It seems worse today than it was even ten years ago, but it was still bad ten years ago. Right. Uh, so I think I think you know finding the talent, recruiting, and uh, developing the talent is by far probably the most challenging issue facing the industry and the individual contractors. Um, so that's out there. And then I, I think, you know, behind that, there's a whole other litany of issues. Uh, technology is changing very rapidly. And so the more successful contractors are adapting to that. Uh, I think the less successful contractors, you know, to a lesser degree. Uh, so we have to change as business people or we're going to get run over by Google and Amazon and anyone else that is interested in our trade space. And so. Um, you know, we've often uh, discussed that with you know our clients and just in general on the EGI platform. And we, we really need uh, the contractors to understand that they have to lock their customers down. There's different ways to do that, but you know a good service agreement model or some type of a uh, a platform where we can touch the customer on a on a uh, regular basis and uh, we have that opportunity in a non-crisis environment is really critical to building the loyalty and the relationship. Um, a lot like a dental cleaning, if you will. So uh, some people don't really subscribe to the service agreements. There are other ways to do it. But at the end of the day, uh, we've got to employ the technologies that are coming. Um, you know, we're, we're capable of doing an awful lot these days through the electronic platforms. And so there's really no reason not to do it. And I think that's those two issues are definitely out there. Um, finding the right people, developing them, and uh, bringing people into the trade. And then you know, finding a way to use the technology to improve uh, customer relationships uh, and not lose, you know, the brand experience. It's change or die, isn't it, when it comes to technology? I think so. I mean, I think if you don't, uh, it's going to be a problem and it may not come to your marketplace today or tomorrow or next week, uh, but it's certainly coming to your marketplace soon and it'll affect all of us. Um, there, there are just too many people that want into our space. Uh, and so essentially, you know, the larger asset uh, companies with resources, they have the ability to do some things and make mistakes and uh, do some things to figure things out. Uh, as a small business owner, you know, we have to be a little sharper, a little tighter with our resources. So, uh, yeah, I think strategy wise, getting ahead of it, uh, that makes all the difference in the world. And developing what I call breakthrough relationships with your customers and your employees. And, and the oh, service agreement, really I, you and I are in alignment with the service agreements too. I, you know, the road to wealth is paved with them and you lock the customer in, it gives your technicians a chance to develop those relationships and 
as you well know, uh, your add-on replacement close rate is going to be much higher if you have a service agreement than if you don't. Absolutely. Uh, the metrics and the history and just all the research over the years has proven that. So uh, it's really inarguable. So yeah, I think that's that's the number one marketing platform that uh, you know we really need to make sure all of our clients in the EGI world and certainly anybody that wants to be long-term successful, even just selling the business one day, um, it just proves that the customer exists and it's repetitive recurring revenue and that makes the company worth more to the acquiring entity. So there's a lot of good reasons to do that. Yeah, you know, they're not going to buy your fixed assets. It's that service agreement base that they're after. Yeah, fixed assets are pretty much dead. They're not worth anything. So uh, uh, I'm not going <laughs> to buy these really nice gauges. I my own trucks, you know. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's not really, you know, I mean, it's just not uh, practical. So, and I'm not buying your cash. So, I mean, all, all of that, that type of stuff um, is just not really uh, proof of, you know, a, a brand or a value that transfers to the next owner. So, right. I like to think that we build a business that actually doesn't require us as owners. And, you know, once we've attained that particular model, then the business is worth more because it doesn't necessarily require Mark or Gary uh, or anyone to necessarily be present for it to be successful. And that's a that's a hard thing. But that's back to your leadership question. You know, what are the things that you need to do in order to develop that? So time and Money freedom doesn't just happen. It's something that takes years and a, a, a business model that gets inputted over lots and lots of hours, lots and lots of weeks of training, months and developing your people. And so, I mean, but it can be attained. I'm sitting on a beach in Grand Cayman right now doing this call. And there's five operating companies that are operating without me, even though I'd like to think that I'm helpful when I'm there. They're doing it without me. And that's what you really are trying to create in a business is something that can be transferred to the next entity, even if you don't want to. Well, the saddest thing I hear is the contract says, I haven't had a vacation in five years. And my response is, I wouldn't say that again out loud in public if I were you. That's not something to brag about. Yeah, well, I mean, gosh, I guess if that's what you want, uh, more power to you, but I also think right. that's probably not very fair to your family. And uh, as you know, we need to recreate, recreate ourselves. and. I think, you know, taking some time to just even relax and think uh, gives you an opportunity to, as we talked about earlier, just look at the business from, you know, a higher level and just say, hey, what are my aspirations? What do I want? But uh, yeah, I, I, it's doable, it, but it requires change and it requires you as a business owner and maybe even a manager to adapt. And if you're not willing to adapt, then you're probably not going to achieve time and money freedom. Well, it's, it's Michael Gerber in the E-Myth, isn't it? Work on the business and in the business at the same time to get to the point where it doesn't need you. It is. And it's, you know, that's a great read, by the way. Um, for those who haven't read it, you know, it's one of those books you probably ought to read three or four times and almost internalize it. But the second book that I would recommend that people tack on to that, uh, because the Gerber book is the description of the problem and not necessarily the recipe for how to get out, of un out from under the conundrum which is I'm a really complicated individual from a technical point of view. I'm good at that work, but I can't transfer that to my broader group of employees. And so they need me. The second book that really gives you the recipe is scaling up two. And there's uh, it's not an easy read. It's certainly not something you would read uh, before you go to bed because it's uh, it's definitely like concrete. 
there's just a lot of detail in that and it's very specific, but it is the step-by-step guide for this is what you do in order to take a technical business and get out from under you as the owner being the only individual that's the passion, the energy, and the expertise uh, behind execution. And so it lays out the path to do that, you know, starting with the Rockefeller habits and just essentially looking at the 10 Rockefeller habits. And he breaks that down into four sections on each one of those habits. So there's basically 40 principles that he walks you through in the book. You know, just do this one first and then do this one second. And you just, you know, again, it takes years uh, to implement that. Anywhere from three to four years would be sort of the average. And that's a huge commitment. I mean, it's a massive commitment at the leader's level for changing, you know, their behavior. But beyond that, just, you know, putting in structure, uh, you know, just uh, there's just a lot going on in that. But that those two books pair up for me together. I, I would recommend that anybody, you know, that wants to take their business to the next level really should study both of those texts. If the e-myth is algebra, scaling up to is geometry and beyond. Uh, yeah, definitely beyond. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Trig, some calculus. You can take <laughs> it as far as you want. I mean, um, there's nothing in there that I would suggest, Mark, that's necessarily new. Uh, lots of books have been written, uh, but I've never found one particular book that was just uh, all pieced together. Uh, so, you know, so for example, if you read Good to Great or you read Execution by Larry Boss or you read some of those materials, there's lots of stuff in those that are very effective, uh, you know, ideas but nothing that's sort of the structure. And so, yeah, I think what it does is it takes you step-by-step step through geometry and then through trigonometry and then through calculus to the point as far as you want to go with it. And right. it allows the business then to realize that it doesn't need Gary or Mark or any one individual leader that you're putting in processes and you're putting in business principles that will exist past my presence. And, um, you know, that's really good for everybody. It's good for the employees. So as we wind this conversation down, we only have a few minutes left, I think. Why is EGIA the answer for contractors? How is that going to help a contractor go to the next level? There's uh, a couple of different points I would make that uh, why I would think EGIA is the choice. So first of all, there's lots of contractor organizations out there. There's really no shortage of content like we talked about. Uh, and I, I think there's some very, very fine organizations as well. So, uh, but I think where EGIA probably has the the current platform and the current advantage over most everybody else is twofold. Um, there's a step-by-step process inside of the EGI platform, and it begins, you know, with the core curriculums. And so the contractor basically has the ability to tap into that 24/7, 365, and follow the discipline of implementation at their own pace. And uh, so that's the core and the cornerstone of it all. Um, and that's been developed, you know, by a whole host of people, yourself included. Uh, but, you know, there's, I think, 12 educators right now that are some of the top educators inside of the trade. I mean, between yourself and Ellen Rohr, Wally, uh, Drew Cameron, I mean, the talent inside of the EGI platform that's put together the system is, uh, it's really, has, it's unparalleled, it's never been done. And then um, the second thing I think that makes it attractive is you do have lots of support, you know, behind the implementation side. 
There's uh, just a whole host of things. This podcast is a good example of that. You have the ability to dial in for email consulting, ask the experts. We do a Monday management, ask the expert call where, you know, that's uh, archived. So you can listen live, ask questions directly of those types of individuals, or you can dial it up and listen to it, you know, on your free time. So I think the support structure behind that is uh, makes it unique. Um, it's a very, very committed group of people. And so I think when you have the systematic approach that EGI has taken, both in terms of the web platform and also the physical training, um, I mean, that would, to me, be the third element. There's, you know, physical site training and a national conference that uh, EGI puts on that essentially comes with the top level of membership. And you're just going to have the opportunity to network and be involved with people that have already created that pattern of success. Right. And so that gives you the opportunity to ask questions and, and rub shoulders and elbows with some people that have gone through some of the stuff, made the mistakes, or maybe can coach you on, you know, um, site visits and shop discussions and just be able to touch people that have done it. And it's always said, Hey, you know, you become more like the people that you hang around with. Uh, right. So choose wisely. And I think if you're hanging around the EGI conferences and you're networking with those people that are successful, you start picking up some of those ideas and habits. So um, I could go on for a long time, but I, I just think those are the three core benefits uh, that are fantastic. Well, it really is true. You'll be the same person in five years, except for two things, books and people, people and books. Yeah. And you know, the great thing about EGI, there's somebody who's done what you want to do and been where you want to go. If you attend the conferences and you actively participate, which is always the secret to anything, you know, being, being a participant, um, I think that there's no limit uh, to the amount of resources that are already in the EGI platform and it continues to expand. You only need one great idea to change your business and your life. Here, I'm going to end with a story and uh, I'll ask you for some closing thoughts. This five-year-old was uh, watching the Super Bowl with his dad. And he kept bugging him as five-year-olds tend to do. And so being the good father he was, he, uh, he saw a magazine with a picture of the world. And so he cut it up into a hundred pieces and handed his son some tape and said, show daddy how smart you are. So the kid goes off for this little project. And about 20 minutes later, he comes back and it's all taped together. It's not very neat, but everything's where it belongs. He said, wow, son, that was amazing. How did you do that? And the little kid said, well, there was a man on the other side. When I put the man together, the world was all together. And Gary, every time I talk to you, I think to myself, here's a guy who's committed to his own personal and professional development. And as the coach goes, so goes the team. So having you on today's podcast was a real privilege. I know I got a lot of ideas from it. And uh, Lucas, I, I bet you did too. I did. I, most importantly, um, I'm curious about the singing pig, Mark. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Why, why do you want wow, that pig to sing so badly? And then how much does it actually cost to teach a pig to sing? You can't afford it. It's just, you know. Just buy a pig that already sings. not a good move. Not a good move. Well, I appreciate that, Lucas. Thank you. So there's yeah. a special survey, right, Lucas? There is indeed, yeah. We can come back to the pig later and the moldy strawberries. I wanted to talk about those too. But okay. um, there, is a, there is a special survey. Of, so this is from EGIA. One of the most common member benefit requests that we get at EGIA is to supply a group employee benefit insurance program that would allow EGIA members to provide um, affordable health care to their employees and deliver substantial savings to their businesses. And we're now in the process of actually exploring this possibility. Really exciting, but we need your help, everybody out there. 
members and actually non-members alike. This is just, we're asking you to take a five minute survey, egia.org slash survey, no more than five minutes to kind of get a better insight of what your business's specific needs are as it relates to kind of employee benefit programs, medical coverage. Um, and basically we'd be able to take all of our members and leverage kind of a group buying rate. So it could really potentially bring costs down. Um, and if you take the survey, you're entered into a drawing to win $100, whether you're a member or not. So um, egia.org slash survey would be a very big help. And then as always, EGIA members have access to our full archive of industry research reports that we derive from surveys, anonymized data. So you know, no names or anything like that, but uh, eight years worth of data that's available at egia.org. So thank you, Mark. Who doesn't have five minutes? Come on. Who doesn't have and five minutes? Potentially $100. Survey, we'll tell you more about the pig. <laughs> and the moldy strawberries. Five minutes, $100. Right. Well, Gary, uh, closing thoughts, my friend? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks again for the opportunity. It's been great. I've loved spending the time with you guys. So uh, I, I would suggest that uh, anybody that's uh, part of the EGI family, uh, the real trick is to actively engage and to just get involved, uh, attend the conferences, attend the training, actively involve yourself in the resources that are available and uh, get out of your comfort zone. So uh, like you suggested, just uh, you know, the picture on the other side, that, that young man figured it out. I think as long as we're able to get out of our comfort zone and look at things a little differently, sometimes the answers are there for us. So appreciate the opportunity. Well, Gary, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was jealous that you're in the Cayman Islands and I'm in Edmonds, Washington, but we're both looking at the beach. <laughs> so I guess that's uh, my consolation. You're you on uh, your beach, right? You're an inspiration, man. Everybody you meet, I'm, I'm proud to call you my friend. Thank you so much for your time today. Same here. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Well, that'll do it for today's episode. As always, visit egia.org slash podcasts to find this episode and an archive of previous episodes. The online form to submit your questions for our mailbag segment, links to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Google Play app, and a link to the latest EGI snapshot survey. For more information about EGI membership, visit www.egi.org slash join. I'm Mark Madison. Thanks for letting me play in your sandbox. I'll see you next time.